Amen. You can grab a seat. And if you have a Bible, you can be flipping over to Psalm chapter 34, and let me introduce myself. My name is Kevin Barra. I'm the college pastor over at our Southwood campus, and uh, I used to work here at Grace Anderson for a long, long time, and uh, it is so fun to be back and see some familiar faces. Man, it's so fun to be back here. So Psalm chapter 34, I'm going to read a little bit for us, and then we will jump in. Psalm chapter 34, starting in verse 1, actually starting in the preview, says this. Of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out, and he went away. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be on my mouth. My mouth makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look on him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all this trouble. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is him who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger. But those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Well, have you ever had a good day that went from bad to worse? You ever feel like the bottom dropped out of your life? Well, that was me uh, about two months ago. Um, I'm a... doing all this planning for college ministry. And this was in May and we're doing all this planning. And I'm excited about the future of college ministry and what we get to do. And I'm, I'm excited, all these meetings lined up, all these phone calls that I had made. And then I get a call from my wife and, she, uh, and, and I miss the call. And then she texts immediately like three times in a row, 911, call back immediately. We're all uh, on fire. And so like, I'm like, what's going on? And so I call her up and I say, what's happening? And she says, well, uh, me and the kids are stranded in H-E-B parking lot on Tower Point. Uh, come now. We blew a tire. And I'm like, oh, that's terrible. And so I hop into my car and I start driving over there. And I get there and I see the, <laughs> my wife kind of locking herself in the car. A little, little backstory. Uh, I have four kids, um, a seven-year-old daughter named Peyton, an uh, almost six-year-old son named Micah, a th- four-year-old son named Jesse, and an 18-month-old daughter named Juliet. So, you know, simple scenario, right? And so she's sitting there uh, parked next to a grass median uh, at the Tower Point HEB, and I hop out, and I'm like, okay, well, get the kids out of the car, and let me kind of assess the damage. And I look over at the tire, and there's a gouge just flapped open from the tire. And I'm like, babe, how did you do that? Like, road demon? Like, what happened to that tire? And she's like, I don't know. And, and so I get the jack out, just a normal kind of run-of-the-mill jack, and I start jacking up the tire. And, uh, and I loosen up the bolts, and I, and I take the tire off, and everything's fine. And I go to put the donut tire on. And as I slide it on, the car slips off the jack, falls on the tire, and Kevin is scared. Right? <laughs> uh, the car was fine, but I had to do the whole thing again. I had to jack up the tire once again. As I start jacking up the tire, Hillary calls um, a, a tire store there near us, and they're like, yeah, we're backed up. Uh, we don't want your kids running around here. Uh, why don't you just come back later this afternoon? And I'm like, great, we can't even get this thing fixed. I finally finish with the tire. Um, I say, hey, just go home, and, uh, and I'll take care of this later. 
I go back into my car. I missed a meeting, but I'm like, fine, I can, I can do some other things today. And so I start driving back. I'm driving along Texas. I cross 20 to 18. And all of a sudden I hear this, blah, 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 blah. I'm like, what is this? Two tires, like 20 minutes. And I pull over into another store. They help me with my tire. And immediately two tires, 20 minutes, my tires get blown two by two. And then I, I sit since this moment, and, I, and I'm, a, I'm a Christian, right? And if you're a Christian, as you have moments like that in your life, you know, when God blows your tires two by two through your day, uh, you ask yourself the question, God, are you even aware of what's going on? And you read verses like this from James chapter one, verse two. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials, right? Of various kinds. And you go like, God, why are you complicating my life? Am I really supposed to count it all joy when you bring various kinds of trials into my life? Am I really supposed to do that? Is that real or is that just fantasy? But here's what I love about the Psalms. The Psalms are expressions of real people as they really struggle to walk with God. They're real struggles of real people as they really struggle to walk with God. One commentator writes it this way. He says, the book of Psalms are God's prescription for a complacent church because through it, it reveals how great, wonderful, magnificent, wise, and utterly awe-inspiring he is. If God's people before the incarnation could have such faith in the Lord, witnessing to his greatness and ready to help, how much more should this be true among his 20th century Christians? The book of Psalms can revolutionize our devotional life, our family patterns, and the fellowship and the witness of the church of Jesus Christ, if we'll let it. And the Psalms are written by a variety of authors. And through this summer, if you've been with us, we've gone through several different authors of the Psalms. But my favorite author is David. Because David was a man who, who authentically revealed what it was like to walk with God. And he is a warrior poet. I mean, he was one that fought boldly and wrote passionately as he talks about his walk with God. There's 14 Psalms that recount literally David's experiences as he is walking with God and struggling to have faith. But Psalm 34 is is at a very crucial moment. It's probably one of the hardest moments of David's life. And to understand the context, I've got to set it up for you a little bit. So if you're unfamiliar with David, he was one of the the greatest kings of the Old Testament. He was known as a man after God's own heart. But he he got there through struggle, through trial. And so early on in his life, he was a young shepherd boy watching his daddy's sheep. And he's out taking care of the sheep, watching the sheep in the wilderness. And suddenly Samuel, the prophet, comes. And he comes to to Jesse, David's dad, and says, hey, um, where are your sons? Bring them, because God has called one of them to be king. And so he brings each son in front of Samuel, and Samuel's like, oh, God hasn't chosen any of these. Do you have any other kids? Did we miss one? He says, yeah, but David, but dude's watching sheep. You know what I'm saying? Like, he's just not a quality guy. And, and Samuel goes, no, no, well, bring him in. I mean, a guy that was forgotten by his fathers. Later, he'll be belittled by his brothers. He brings him in, and Samuel sees him and says, this is the man. He anoints him immediately, and he has a great potential. But that will come later. He goes back to watching his father's sheep, and his brothers go off to war. 
And at one moment, David comes bringing cheese and goodies to his brothers in this battle, right? So he's walking in with like cheese tray going, hey dudes, what's going on? And he sees big fella down in the valley, a guy named Goliath that they're all freaked out about. And Goliath is defying the armies of God. He's, he's shouting insults at Israel. And David goes, what's up with big dude? And his brothers are like, calm down, bud. He's like, what's going to happen for the guy that takes that guy down? I mean, do you see what he's doing to God and his, God's people? His brother's like, oh, fine, go talk to Saul about this. And Saul goes, hey, wear my armor. Go fight this war. And David goes down there and with a sling and a stone changes the destiny of the nation and himself. He takes down the giant. And not only does he take down the giant, he gets a new best friend. Jonathan, Saul's son, sees this. And it was insane. I mean, just going man to man with a guy over nine feet tall and fighting this battle was, was crazy. So crazy. It was just the type of crazy that Jonathan loved because he had just done something similar a few chapters earlier. And he walks over and says, David, man, my heart is knitted to you. And he bows down and gives him like his shield, his sword. He's like, I'm dedicating my life to you. So not only had he defeated the giant, he gets a new best friend and immediately a job promotion which you would think he would, right? He is sent as captain of the army to go defend the nation of Israel. And he gets a new job promotion, but not only a new job, he gets the girl, right? He gets to marry Michael, Saul's daughter. And so he's got a new best friend, a new job. He's got the girl. And then he goes, starts fighting for the nation and starts winning. He's so successful that the nation of Israel starts writing songs about him. So the kids are all bumping in the club to the lyrics of David's life. Like Saul has slain his thousands, David his tens of thousands. You know you've made it when they start writing songs about you, right? And everyone, Robert Alter writes, that David is the object of the word to love. Everybody loves David, except Saul, the current king. He gets wind of this. He hears that song. He says, that song's dumb, right? And he gets into a jealous rage about David. And eventually he, he decides, I'm going, to, I'm going to try to kill him. i got to take him down. So David comes into his chamber and he tries to pin him to the wall with a spear. He dodges it. Maybe Saul's having a bad day. He goes in a second time, tries to get killed again, and he runs to Jonathan. Jonathan, your dad's trying to kill me. I don't know what I did, but he's against me. And Jonathan says, it's not that big of a deal. Let me go talk with my dad. And he realized, no, no, there, there's only a step between you and death, David. You've got to run. So he runs to Michael, right? His wife. He says, Michael, you've got to hide me. Your dad's trying to kill me. Well, what are we going to do? And he, he runs to Michael and she says, okay, I'll hide you. But later she betrays him to her dad. And so he has to run again. He runs to Samuel, his mentor. His mentor says, I, I, I can't help you. Keep running. Then he runs to the high priest, to Ahimelech. And there with the high priest... Later on, he'll be, the high priest will be killed for helping David. He lies to him. Saul's pursuing him. He has to run again, and he runs to Gath. Now, Goliath was a Philistine from Gath. This is the capital of the enemy army, and he's there at Gath trying to hide out, and they recognize him. They're like, aren't you the dude they sing songs about? That's literally what they say. And they repeat the song. Saul has slain his thousands, David has 10,000. It's kind of catchy, but we don't like you because you, you murdered our guy. And so immediately they bring him before the king of Gath. And to protect himself, he feigns insanity. He starts drooling down his beard. He starts scratching on the wall like, rah, rah, and it's 
to try to protect himself. And so all in a moment, he goes from the highest high to the lowest low. He lost his job, his friend, his wife, his mentor, and lastly, even his self-respect. What do you do in a moment when you feel like you've lost everything? See, there's something that God's doing in David's life that he does in all of our lives in circumstances like this. There's something that God wants to carve into David that needs to be carved into us, and it's character. You see, David is going to be on the run for this decade of life in his 20s. He's going to become king in his 30s. And that decade, that time, God is going to carve into him character. And there's three character qualities from this psalm that God carves into David and needs to be carved into us. And they're this, to be dependent, wise, and hope-filled. To be dependent, wise, and hope-filled. And character qualities don't come when, when the wind is at your sails. It often comes when life gets the hardest. So David says this in verse 1. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be on my mouth. My mouth makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. See, what David does in this section to show his dependence, to cling to God, is that he praises God in all circumstances, which is surprising. I wouldn't start the psalm this way. Praise you, God, as I am in the clutches of the king, as I'm running for my life. He praises God, though, in every one of his life circumstances. Do you do that? In every situation that you face, do you first move with praise? I don't. As God ruins my day, I don't say, thank you, Lord, for doing this to me. Thank you, God, for creating these trials. Thank you, God, for making me spend that couple hundred bucks on replacing a couple tires during the day. Like, I don't move that way. But there's something that I was missing and something I think all of us miss. In order to learn how to praise God in all circumstances, literally at all times, it means you have to experience a variety of life circumstances. In order to praise God when it's good, it's kind of easy. But to praise God when it's difficult that's when it's hard. There's a book uh, written several years ago, and it was called Crazy for the Storm. And it was about a kid who had, a, who had survived a horrific plane crash. Uh, he was at 11 years old. Uh, his plane crashed in the side of a mountain. Everyone on the plane died, but he alone made it down alive. And the, the book is about how he did it. And the way he did it is he had a picture of his father. His father who had trained him. His father who was literally crazy for the storm. And so his dad was an adventurer. And he would stick his son in impossible environments. So he would take him out surfing with huge waves that weren't safe, right? And say, go swim, boy, right? He would take him up to huge mountains. I mean, where you could not ski down. There was no markings and say, come on, buddy. And just go. And in every one of those environments, this kid learned how to survive when life got crazy. And in this moment, when his plane was crashed on the side of the mountain, he had this picture of his father and the training that his father had given him. And so he was able to survive that environment. Over and over again in the scripture, it calls God a loving father. 
A dad who loves you, who is using trial to train you. Hebrews 12 says it this way. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Amen. You get it. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. One commentator writes, the reader should not see the sufferings they're experiencing as a sign of God's hurt, but a sign of God's love. See, God isn't rejecting you when you're hurting. He's saying, I want, you to, tra- I want to train you. I want you to lean into me. I want you to cling to me even when it hurts. I want you to praise me in all circumstances, but not just praising me. I want you to seek me. Verse four says it this way. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me out of all of my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. He says, I sought the Lord in all circumstances and he heard me. I sought him. The word, the Hebrew word there for seek basically means to beat a path. To beat a path and go that same path over and over again. Some of you have dogs, right? And you leave your dog in the backyard and inevitably, that dog will, will run back and forth across the, f- the fence line, right? Barking at other dogs, other people, whatever. And as that dog runs back and forth, it literally beats a path along that trail. It kills all the grass, makes you upset, but, but it beats a path. And what, what David is saying in this psalm is, look, I, I sought the Lord. I beat a path toward him. I, I sought him in every one of my life's circumstances. I, I trusted him. And I went to him, I clung to him, even when it hurt. I praised him and I sought him. Frank Peretti writes it this way. God does not waste an ounce of our pain or a drop of our tears. Suffering doesn't come our way for no reason. He seems especially efficient at using what we endure to mold our character. If we are malleable, he takes our bumps and bruises and shapes them into something beautiful. I love that. I can trust God that he is taking even my pain to bring me closer into shaping me into what he wants me to be. So the first character quality that we see is this, that, that we need to be dependent. We need to cling to the Lord because it's through the anvil of life's trials that God beats character into our heart but not merely that we would be dependent. Secondly, that we would be wise, that we would commit our life to his path. Verse eight says it this way. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him lack no thing, good thing. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. See, the second section of this psalm is, is where what David is lying out is that there's a second character that we need. We need to be wise. We need to be people that, that know the way the world works and navigate appropriately in that world. 
And what's interesting is the picture that he, that he lays out. He says, taste and see that the Lord is good because there are people that will go hungry. He says this, even the young lions go hungry, which is so interesting that he would choose that image because what's a young lion? It's a predator in its prime, right? Lions literally can, they have a bite force of over 650 pounds per square inch. They are between 300 and 500 pounds. They are powerful animals. And what David says is even the most powerful can go hungry when they go on their own. And I I love watching football. I love sports. But if you ever listen to the language that's around football players that are around sports, it's always predator imagery, right? It's they have a killer instinct, right? They're, they're like on the prowl. They're on the hunt. Like it's all of this predator language. And I, and I love watching sports, but it's so interesting when you watch these people in their prime start to lose their edge. They were so good at one time. And the problem is that killer instinct only works for a while. That predator reality only works for a while. Eventually, even the strong get weak. I watched uh, one of the most famous basketball players uh, kind of in my lifetime, um, just after Michael Jordan, is a guy named Kobe Bryant, right? A guy who was a phenomenal basketball player, won five NBA championships, but at the end of his career, that killer instinct drove everyone away from him. See, but it's not just people that, that push too hard and push people away. It's true that you can lose your edge. You can miss your opportunity. Or the, the worst yet is when you get what you most want and find it to be empty. Boris Becker was at the top of his game. He was at the top of the tennis world. And he says this, I've won Wimbledon twice before, once as the youngest player, and I was rich. I had all the material possessions I needed. It's the old song of movie stars and pop stars who commit suicide. They have everything And yet they are so unhappy. I had no inner peace. I was a puppet on a string. He was at the top of his game and he went hungry. He was a predator in his prime, yet felt completely empty. Jack Higgins, famous author, wrote multiple bestsellers. And he writes this. When you get to the top, you realize there's nothing there. You see, he says, even the young lions go hungry. Even the most powerful realize that this place can leave you empty. And the wise person realizes that a life apart from God, a life pursued on your own, will ultimately leave you empty. Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24 says this, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight. See, the wise person knows that I'm not as strong as I think. I can't control my life. I can't control my circumstances. Only one has control of all things, and that's God. So not only do I know that I'm not as strong as as I think, I commit myself to his way, to his path, And that's what he says in verse 11. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you to fear the Lord. What man is there who desires life and love many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil 
your lips from speaking deceit, turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. I love that. Seek peace and pursue it. The word pursue there in Hebrew means to make a linear path, to push other things away and, I, and, and chasing one path. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to chase the path of God. I'm going to align my life be, behind his design because I know that's the wise thing to do. That's when life will make sense. And I'm going to remove these other things and chase his life. I'm going to cling to him in all circumstances. Picture that uh, makes sense, makes this sense in my mind is... Uh, when I brought my daughter uh, ice skating uh, a little while ago. Now, I'm terrible at everything that involves wheels or skates or that sort of thing. And, uh, and so I took her there, and she's like, Daddy, uh, I'm not really good at skating yet. She was like five years old. Uh, help me out. And I'm like, okay, babe. Um, why don't you go on out and see what you can do? And she's like, I can't do it. And I'm like, that's what I was afraid of. Neither can I. And so I start by trying to like wobble my way around. I'm like, oh, I can't do this. And so I go over to the, uh, the people kind of running the show there at Wolfpen. And I'm like, hey, do you have anything to help out? And they have these walkers, you know, like, you know, for people with major injuries or men that are trying to skate on ice with their daughter. And, uh, and so they, they gave them to me and, and I walk out there and, and she stands in the middle. I stand holding the walker and we start going, right? And this is, you know, very masculine, feeling great at this moment as we're going around. And, uh, and at a moment, I, I, I start to gain some confidence. Like, oh, okay, I, I got this. I, I, can, I can venture out on my own. And I, I let her stay in the middle and I move to the outside. I'm like, babe, this is great. Boom, slip out, fall on the ground. I'm like... I don't know what I'm doing. And that's true in your Christian life. As soon as you feel like you're strong, you're wise, you start venturing out on your own path, you realize, ah, this isn't going to get me there. I've got to stay close. I've got to commit my life to his path and he will lead me home. So we cling to God. We commit to his path. But lastly, we realize that the last character quality that he wants to give us is to be hope-filled, to be hope-filled, to be people that believe that God will really come through. What's interesting, though, is that there's a lot of people that aren't hope-filled. There's a lot of people in our world that, that don't have a lot of good reason to have hope. One author, Ray Bradbury, uh, author of many great books, writes it this way, some people turn sad awfully young for no special reason. It seems that almost they are born that way. They bruise easier, they tire faster, they cry quicker, they remember longer. And as I say, get sadder younger than anyone else in the world. I know, for I am one of them. See, there's some people that, that get sad early. And, and they have all the reason to blame. I, I can't be hope-filled because I don't know that anyone will come through for me. In fact, atheists have lots of good reasons not to be hope-filled. One writer, Richard Dawkins, writes it this way. The total amount of suffering per year in the natural world is beyond all decent contemplation. During the minute that takes me to compose this sentence, thousands of animals will be eaten alive. Many others are running for their lives, whimpering with fear. Others are slowly being devoured from within by rasping parasites. Thousands of all kinds are dying of starvation, thirst, and disease. It must be so. If there is ever a time of plenty, this very fact will automatically lead to an increase in the population until the natural state of starvation and misery is restored. You're so hope-filled. Okay. 
And he writes this. In a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt. Other people are going to get lucky. And you won't find any rhyme or reason for it, nor any justice. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Not very hope-filled. But then I put my mind into Richard's mind. I put my place in his place. And if it's true, if I just observe the world... If I just observe the pain and I let that be the only point in the story that I absorb, if I just look at what's happening and let that be the only version of truth, then I think think Richard may have a point. I think the world may only be evil if this is all I see. But it's in the midst of that chaos that God still speaks. And there is something that God wants to show. I hear and I respond. I listen to your cries and I will respond to your cries. Verse 15 says it this way. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off their memory. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of their trouble. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the Christian spirit. I love that. He says, God is listening. He may not respond in the timing you most want, but he hears you and he will respond to you. He is not blind. He is not deaf. Our God hears and he will respond to your deepest cries. He hears you. Do you know that? That's why you can be dependent on him. That's why you can be wise in following him. That's why you can be hope-filled because he hears you and he responds. And he goes on in this psalm to say this, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all of his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Now I read that, and if you're thinking, you're like, okay, Kevin. <laughs> no one, not one of the righteous will fall. Not one of the righteous will have a bone that's broken. Well, Kevin, I've broken a bone, right? Kevin, I've, I've had some tough circumstances. I, I've seen some things not go well. You, you've got to help me with this. Well, David's writing better than he knows. Because John, the author of, of the Gospel of John, is going to pick up this same passage And this isn't referring to the righteous people, people that have come to God alone. It's referring to a righteous one. Romans says it this way, there's no one righteous, not even one, no one who understands, no one who seeks God. But there was a righteous one that came. His name is Jesus Christ. And he lived the life we could not live, perfectly obeying God. He died the death we deserve to die. There was a a sin stain that covered the world And he says, I'm going to take the punishment for that on me. And when I die, I will take all of the pain of the world, all of the sin on the world, all of the tragedy of the world on myself. And if you come to me, if you believe in me, 
I will give my righteousness to you as a gift. And you can come and live eternally with me. And you can be part of the peace that I'm bringing. See, the reason we have hope is because God sent his son to step in for us and to save us. Have you believed that? The best picture in my mind is when I was a young kid um, hanging out with my cousins and we were uh, looking at houses as they were kind of rebuilt, uh, looking to buy a new house. And we're in this, uh, this neighborhood that kind of had a pond with a cement ledge to it. And we're kind of just playing around and me and my cousin Greg are, are going to the edge of the, the pond and playing the game of how far can you go in without falling in, right? And we're probably like seven or eight years old. And so Greg goes first and he starts inching his way to the side. And what we didn't realize at this moment is that there was a layer of algae that had covered the cement all the way around. And so he slips in and immediately starts calling out to me, Kevin, Kevin, help. And I watch him just floating to his demise, you know? And, and I'm like, okay, I, this is my time, right? And I run over there and I run to grab his hand, but I'm not just a kid. I don't pull him out. He pulls me in. And so I'm floating in. We're both like floating into oblivion in this pond, you know, in this area. And we start screaming out, help, help, someone help, right? And then suddenly I see my uncle David across the way. Now he, he passed away recently, but at the time he was a large man, like 6'2 and burly, right? And so he sees us and then I see him running, right? And at one level I'm like afraid. But then I watch him run. And so it's kind of funny, you know, because so, like he's kind of jolly. And, and so he starts running towards me. And I'm like, ah, <laughs> you know, as he's running. And then with one grip, he grabs me with his hand and just pulls me out, like pulls me out of the water and lands. And he grabs his son, pulls him out. And I look at that. I'm like, thank you that you rescued me from the situation that I was in. That is the beautiful picture of the gospel. As Jesus is there on the cross, he says, forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. And he died before they could even break his legs. And they buried him in a tomb. And then he rose from death, saying, if you come and believe in me, you get to be part of the peace that I'm bringing. And I think so many of us struggle to have hope because we focus on our problems and we forget God's promises. We focus on what's not going right instead of trusting in the God who says, look, if you don't believe that I'm in control of this, look at my son. The pain that was inflicted on him wasn't the end of his story and it's not the end of yours if you come to me. C.S. Lewis in, in his book, The Last Battle, talks about the restoration of all things. And there's going to be a moment when Jesus returns and fixes everything that's broken. And I love the picture that C.S. Lewis writes. He says this, as he spoke, he no longer looked like the lion. Aslan was, Jesus was depicted as a lion in in these books by C.S. Lewis. He writes, but the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all stories. And we can most truly say that all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All of their life in this world and all of their adventures in Narnia had only been the the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever and ever, in which every chapter is better 
than the one before. I love that picture. Why can I have hope? Because I know that God is going to come in and rescue and restore everything that's broken into the way that it should be. The way that it was intended to be. He will right every wrong. He will stop every racism. We'll be people from every tribe and, tri- uh, tribe and tongue and nation celebrating at his feet as he restores everything to where it should be. And I love Paul because he gives us a reality check in the midst of our world. The author Paul in Romans eight thirty five through 39 writes a hope-filled statement for us that are in the midst of trial in the midst of our struggle. He writes this perspective. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? No. Or distress? No. Or persecution? No. Or famine? Or nakedness? I don't know why they're naked. Or danger? Or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to the slaughter. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Do you believe that? Do you, you clung to him? Are you dependent on him? And are you hopeful that every wrong that was broken will be restored when he comes in the middle? There's nothing that can separate you from the love of God. There is no pain that he won't turn for purposeful goodness in his timing. And we can trust him because he loves you. He sent his son for you. He died for you. And he's bringing everything together for his glory. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you so much for this morning. And I thank you that in the midst of a trying time in our country, we know that this isn't the end of the story. That we can be dependent, we can grow in wisdom, and we can be hope-filled because we know you are restoring all things that are broken. So Lord, as we go from here, I pray that we could be agents of restoration. We could be people that speak peace and pursue it in the midst of a tough time. We love you, and I lift up these people to you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You guys have a great Sunday.